All right. Uh, my name is Ben Jones. Uh, I'm an elder in training, so to speak, uh, under Brian and Paul right now. Uh, and kind of the last thing, nearly the last thing, is to preach in front of all of you. Uh, so I'm excited to be here today. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't nervous. You know, the clammy hands and kind of dry throat, it's all there. Uh, but we're continuing on in this series that we're titling Not Just Another Story, where we're looking at maybe some familiar teachings from Jesus, some parables, uh, and seeing how Jesus isn't just telling these moralistic stories. It's not just these simple things, but uh, in the Bible, in Christianity, things aren't quite what you'd expect. Uh, so today we're going to be in Luke 16. And the sermon today is titled, A Story About Wealth Management, Luke 16. First, let me introduce myself. My name, again, is Ben Jones. Uh, my beautiful bride, Emily, is here there on the left. Uh, we've been married about seven years, uh, six and a half, sorry. Uh, we've been coming to Lower Town uh, since its life, uh, about six years. Um, we have two cats there. You can tell barely that there are two there, Tank and Dozer. Uh, we really like board games and video games, so that's just one of our favorites up there. I've also gotten into gardening for the past, gardening for the past couple of years, uh, and it's always fun for me to see the first things emerge up there in the top right. That's a corn seedling, and then that's where it is just yesterday. Uh, you can, can't really tell, but it's uh, taller than me, just in like eight weeks, so that's kind of fun. Um, what else? I'm an engineer by trade. There you go. <laughs> so as Brian likes to uh, repeat often, and Paul certainly, uh, whenever we jump into these teachings, it's always good to get into the context. So this is again, Luke 16. Uh, this is a money, uh, money parable. Uh, there are only three in Luke, uh, only three in the gospels and they're all in Luke. Uh, the gospel of Luke captures other challenges from Jesus about money. And so really when you read through Luke and when we read this gospel, uh, we can't avoid it. We're gonna be talking about money, all right? Uh, specifically in Luke though, uh, we're in this section that academics would call the journey to Jerusalem where from about chapter nine to I think around 17, uh, Jesus is traveling to Jerusalem at the end of his earthly life to be crucified. And so he has all these challenges. You know, This is when his ministry is reaching its zenith. He has crowds following him. Uh, and of course, the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time uh, are paying attention. Um, and so often you see in his teachings at this time, he's, he's challenging those in power. He is preaching this message that God loves those on the margins, the poor, uh, the dis disabled, things like that. Uh, and that ultimately God rejects empty religiosity. Um, and we might touch on that a little bit towards the end, uh, but there are, you know, those are just kind of the bigger themes around Jesus' teaching at this time. Uh, I have Brian and Paul to thank for this wonderfully difficult passage. Uh, and I have a couple quotes here to uh, kind of breed some sympathy for me. So this first one is from uh, an academic with a lovely name, lovely name, Klein R. Snodgrass. You know, if there are any expecting parents out there, write that one down. Uh, he says this in the beginning of his section on this parable. This parable is notoriously difficult. Richard Trench in 1864 complained of the manifold and curious interpretations of this parable, stating that very many interpreters had overrun their game. A bewildering number of explanations exist for this parable, 
many of which are still, sorry, still in danger of overrunning their game. And then uh, I listened to a sermon from Sproul, you know, among many others to try to prepare for this. And in 2021, he said this uh, at the beginning of his sermon, I'm going to tie myself to the mast and pray for an additional dose of the grace of God. And that this and next week, you know, the first half of 16, second half of 16, will be over quickly so I can get on with more pleasant passages. The 16th chapter begins with the parable of the unjust steward, which is almost universally considered by biblical scholars to be the most difficult of Jesus's parables to understand. And as we read through this, maybe that'll be, uh, become clear. And, you know, hey, I'm not complaining, but, you know, come on. <laughs> all right, so let's get into it. So this is all from the NIV. We're going to read 1 through 15 together. Uh, giddy up. Jesus told his disciples, there is a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be my manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their homes. So he called in each one of his master's debtors he asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 450. Then he asked the second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commented, uh, uh, sorry, commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. All right, so kind of a lot of text, uh, but what we'll do now is just pull out some of the details to kind of guide our reading. All right, so first, who, who's involved in this? So we have an owner, a rich man, uh, and then a manager. Other translations would use the word steward. Um, and then uh, we know that the manager is not necessarily the owner of this money. He's doing things at the owner's bidding um, and that this manager has to give an account of his management. Uh, sorry, lost my place now, ironically. Yeah, went, went too quick. There we go. Uh, one highlight thing to highlight here is both in this verse and the verse following, we see like, you know, half to 80% of the debt being paid back. 900 gallons then is reduced to 450. The Jews at the time were not allowed to give money at interest to their fellow Jews. And so what academics say happened instead is they would use these commodities and have usurious terms. Um, usurious being that word of 
exorbitant interest. You know, this is twice as much. Uh, it's unclear from reading if this is the choice of the manager. Is this why he's called dishonest? Or maybe the owner himself is also kind of shady and is saying, yeah, you got to give these uh, loans at 100% interest or something like that. Um, but that's kind of the little bit of context there. Uh, also, I should note that these are large amounts of money. So it's not necessarily like, you know, Jesus's fishermen disciples could exactly relate to this, right? This is like your regional man manager of Olive Garden or something like that. Like it's kind of this weird, you know, middle upper middle class type of thing. Um, all right. So we also see that Jesus outright labels this manager dishonest in the parable. And yet he also says that he acted shrewdly. Now that word shrewd feels negative, right? But it's important to note that that's the choice of the NIV translators to use that word shrewd. The word itself that's translated that is just wise. Um, and it's kind of a neutral word, you know, it's amoral. Uh, the other time we see it in the gospels notably is in Matthew 10, where Jesus tells his disciples, be wise as serpents, innocent as doves. So it's, it's actually that same word. So really all that negative stuff is in this word dishonest. It, it is literally unrighteous. Okay, and still going. It kind of seems as we read that Jesus gives us the punchline to this parable uh, in eight and nine. Uh, for some reason, other readers would not quite see it that way. Um, it seems that when you know, an academic summarizes readings, they tend to land on this, that Jesus is giving us the punchline. I'll say that it's not like a clear punchline, but it is the punchline. Um, for the people of this world are more shrewd. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. You know, it's just clear that the way Jesus is talking, this is the interpretation of it, so to speak. Again, not necessarily clear, but <laughs> it's what Jesus is telling us. And then as we move into verse 10, uh, Luke seems to be sort of appending on these teachings from Jesus. These are things that feel sort of tangential, sort of maybe a natural jumping off point, but not necessarily part of the parable where it says, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And then he also says, no one can serve two masters. You know, these are things we find in other gospels, whereas the parable itself is unique to Luke. Um, and these are things that just sort of expand Jesus' teaching. And then uh, lastly, we have uh, this note that it's not just the disciples that are in Jesus' audience. Verse one starts with that. You know, now he told the disciples this parable, but then by the time we get to verse, verse 14, we see that the Pharisees are there eavesdropping, you know, so to speak. Uh, we can assume that Jesus knew the Pharisees were listening. And so when we see that the Pharisees are there in the audience, it kind of helps us understand why Jesus is saying what he's saying. You know, he's talking about these large sums of money that his disciples wouldn't have had, but others in his audience would have. It also is kind of a echo and a parable, a parallel of things that Jesus says often that God looks on the inside of our hearts, not the outside. He talks about the Pharisees being these whitewashed tombs elsewhere, you know, and talking about uh, cups that they wash the outside of the cup and not the inside of the cup. God knows your hearts. All right, but let's kind of summarize this parable, or at least let me summarize to you uh, maybe whether or not you agree based on these observations, kind of what's happening. So the manager is facing a threat to his future. He's going to lose his job because of his dishonesty. It could be related to the loans. It might not be. Whatever it is, we're told that this manager is dishonest. 
So therefore, he uses his abilities, his connections, his handling of the money to get some insurance for himself, so to speak. He says, okay, I'm going to curry favor with these people so that when I lose my job, they will invite me into their homes. It's important to note that in, in the reading of this parable, it's, it doesn't seem like the steward is necessarily redeeming himself in this action. This is just also clever, right? And it's, it's a neutral assessment that Jesus makes. He doesn't say, and now the manager is righteous. No, the manager is still dishonest. And, you know, one might say, hey, maybe the owner doesn't want this to happen. Uh, but the owner is impressed with, you know, the manager's actions. And then at the end of the day, Jesus is asking how much more, if this is how the manager uses his money, how much more ought the people of light use their money in wise ways? But we're gonna kind of unpack that the rest of our time today. Let's just take a step back and ask ourselves, how is this not just another story? So this is not a guide to making it in business. You know, it's not, uh, I don't know, Christian Business 101 to ask for twice as much as someone should pay you and then say, oh, I'll give you a 50% discount. Like that's not what this is. Nor is it a story of winning God's approval or blessing. You know, if you only read through verse nine, you see the owner commend the manager and then you think, okay, so then, yeah, it's a one for one, right? Like, so I got to do this clever money thing and then God will love me. That's not at all what's going on here. Jesus is telling his audience that God's way is a different kind of investment. All right, so let's dive in a little deeper here. So Jesus is again asking, how much more ought the people of light invest wisely? Uh, hopefully the what of this passage is getting a little clearer um, and we're gonna get into the why, but this is where it gets a little thornier, right? Why is Jesus saying we should invest wisely or essentially to what end? And I think we can kind of ask the question like, hey, don't you know the gospel, Jesus? Like, are we supposed to be earning God's favor with our dollars? Uh, but it's important to highlight what we do tend to say about parables is that they are analogy and not allegory. You know, this isn't written where we take that kind of one for one, like God is the owner, I am the manager. Okay, but then who are the debtors? And like, what does giving 50% back mean? Is Jesus the manager? Okay, but then yeah, again, what's, what's the debts about exactly? So it's really just saying in the same way that this person, this dishonest person uses their money, we should think about as people of light, we should think about how we use our money. And so that's really all I'm saying here. Uh, let's think about how it would instruct us then. The manager is making a wise choice due to the pressure of his future reality. He is losing his job, so now what? The people of God have a real eternal future secured by Jesus himself. So Jesus is saying, how much more then ought we to use our money, our mammon is the Greek word, our money here and now uh, in a way that's inspired by our eternal future? All right, so let me, if you will, just exhaust the point, all right? When you're making bread, you have to knead it and fold it and fold it again and keep kneading it so that you can get to a point where you stretch a little window and light passes through without it breaking apart. So I'm gonna do that, Spirit, build up spiritual protein, if you will. <laughs> uh, so the first point is that God gives us our wealth. This is just true. Um, you know, it could be a sermon in and of itself, but it's just true. Uh, and the second point being that God wants us to use our wealth with an eternal perspective, all right? This first thing is what I might call a closed-handed belief, like this is just true. Uh, every good and perfect gift is from above, from the Father of heavenly lights, that's James 1. 
This is just true. God gives us our money here and now. He gives it unequally. We can't know why, but he does give it to us. The second point is that uh, the way this looks can be pretty open-handed. It looks very different among each one of us. Uh, you know, you can give money to the poor directly. You can give money to the church. You can support programs, uh, ministries that you agree with, things like that. Um, but let's look at scripture and see some more examples of this. So in Luke 8, you know, I'll have two passages in Luke to kind of reinforce this money theme throughout the gospel. This is just a brief note. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, Susanna, and many others, these women were helping to support the disciples out of their own means in Luke 8. Uh, Joanna being uh, the manager of sort of the local king, local governor of the region where Jesus spent a lot of his time, manager of his household. So she was certainly wealthy. She'd be in that kind of 900 gallons of olive oil camp. Um, the first glimpse of kind of the church body with different functions, right? Like we, most of us support a few people who make what happens here at Hope happen. Um, kind of an interesting story there. And then in Luke 21, uh, we have something that might be a little more familiar. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. And this was an important uh, passage to cross-reference here, to me at least. This is kind of a good example of what, uh, what the impact of giving a percentage versus like a strict dollar amount feels like, right? Uh, perhaps for this widow, you know, at the time the Jews would have really tried to adhere to a 10th of everything they had, a tithe. Perhaps for this widow, two copper coins is all she had for 10% of whatever she had. Compared to the Pharisees, they were probably also giving just 10%. Um, elsewhere in Luke 11, Jesus kind of calls out the Pharisees for tithing mint and dill and these herbs. You know, it's like, why? Uh, <laughs> uh, but what he then goes on to say is you neglect the very ways of God, the justice and love of God. Um, and this, this is still true for us today. You know, you could... We could probably agree that there's some minimum dollar amount that we need to survive here in America. And beyond that, it's like 10% of $100,000, $10,000 could be 100% of what someone else has to give, right? That percents don't really quite hit the same when we're talking about generosity. And, uh, you know, just as an interesting note, the word tithe is only used by Jesus in the negative when he's calling out the Pharisees. And the concept of giving a 10th of what we have is not repeated in the New Testament. It just talks about generosity, giving, meeting needs, things like that. Um, and so really even this parable was likely a challenge to the Pharisees, the idea of this manager uh, using his money. Um, and it, as a last note, Jesus's commendation of this widow is an encouragement that really everyone can give some amount. Uh, however little or however much. All right, but now I kind of want to read this longer passage uh, where really it, it, it feels like a good kind of example of what uh, living out this principle from Jesus could look like. So this is in 2 Corinthians 8. Uh, Paul is talking about churches, two churches. So there's a lot of players involved, but try to just key in on these bolded words. In the midst of a very severe trial, the Macedonians' overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. 
For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the Lord's people. I'm not commanding you, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through, through his poverty, we might become rich. Okay, so do you see how the why behind giving is almost inverted in this scenario compared to the dishonest manager, right? He was essentially giving away money to secure his own future, that he would have a place to stay, that he would have uh, allies, people to watch out for him. Whereas for us, it's our generosity has to be inspired by Jesus's own generosity to us. He gave all, even his descent to a child from his holy status could have been enough in a sense, right? That he stepped out of his divine realm to our dirt. But even what's more, he was a servant to everyone he met. And ultimately, of course, right? He died on the cross for our sake. And it's out of that generosity that we then become rich. Ephesians talks about us having every spiritual blessing, right? And in a very practical way, then Paul makes the one for one, that out of what we have been given by Jesus, we should then give out of our material resources, very literally our money, all right? Um, in chapter nine, uh, right after this, Paul uses that phrase that God loves a cheerful giver. So I, you know, I tend to be serious when I talk about serious things, but I don't wanna beat you over the head with this. I'm just trying to present what's in scripture. And just as with Paul, I want you to, I want to convince you with the truth of the gospel that we can give rather than saying you must give. All right, so again, so Jesus has himself paid for our, <laughs> Jesus himself has paid for our secure future. <clears throat> and if we know what happens to us in the future, that we're gonna be with Christ, if we are in Christ now, and that is so much more than what we have here and now, that secure future, then how much more ought we seek to invest in God's glory here and now? We must use our worldly short-lived resources for God's kingdom. All right, so then the natural question, what must then I do, right? Uh, and like I say, this is an open-handed thing. The, the truth is that we should use our resources uh, as God would approve, a wise way, investing in God's kingdom. The open-handedness comes that you can do this in so many different ways. This isn't to say we need to pay Brian more. You know, I'm almost thankful to be up here doing this because I, I think they'd feel a little awkward about saying, hey, you should give more as the ones being paid by us, right? but I'm right here with you. I mean, I'm not trying to make a divide. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> Certainly give money to hope. We, Brian and Paul are supported by what we give uh, as well as many other functions that they rely on to help us, to serve us. Uh, I would hope that we can give money to each other, not in a tit for tat reciprocity, but you know, when a need, we both make it known, we're asking about needs. So then we can just give money to each other. Hopefully you're getting to know your neighbors and that you can know when they have a material need, again, a material need. Uh, give it to foundations, trusts, NGOs. There are many groups out there. Uh, people in need, people that just approach and ask for cash. Uh, many parachurch ministries, you know, the amount of nonprofits that exist are just incalculable. Um, all these people, all these groups need money and that, sorry, the word there in the middle there, that's the Greek spelling of the word mammon used in the parable where it is, you know, you don't need to obfuscate it. It is money. 
It's the wealth we have here and now. Um, And Jesus is saying, we should use that wisely, invest that wisely. Uh, But again, I'll just kind of emphasize the point that uh, coming alongside of this, inspiring this is prayer, discernment, sincerity, a cheerful giver, right? And not coddling. It's not me telling you or us saying every week, hey, give money to us. Uh, And it's certainly not shame or guilt to motivate your giving. Just recently, we went through uh, a covenant membership renewal process. This happens every year. And if you're a member, you've probably seen this. Hopefully you haven't forgotten to fill that out. Uh, But I was struck, you know, in preparing for this sermon uh, to see this sort of uh, paragraph that's sort of at the end. Um, I kind of trimmed it down, but I'll just read it here. We believe God has called us to live in biblical community through loving relationships and accountability to one another to live out the obedience of faith and grow in Christ through loving God and serving in his work on earth, being good stewards of the time, talents, finances, and other resources God has entrusted to us to demonstrate his grace and love in all we do. Together as a church, we covenant together in carrying out his vision for this church. And, you know, the principles we've seen today are not just for members. They're not just for members of hope. They're for any person of light, as Jesus put it, Uh, But certainly as the people of light, we want to be doing this together in the context of community. You know, it's very easy to uh, treat money as a taboo subject. And certainly I think there's kind of a place for that, for being respectful of one another. Um, But I would hope in your small groups, at the very least, you can find people that, you know, are maybe in a similar enough position that you can have a frank conversation. Like, hey, what what do you kind of budget for like a vacation? You know, what's your target for giving in a year? What's your cash flow look like? You know, things like that. Uh, because it's so easy to convince yourself as you earn more, your standard of living goes up, right? And pretty soon you start having uh, a dozen subscriptions that you don't use, which is $100 a month that you don't need to be spending on that kind of stuff. Just as an example, you know, it doesn't have to be that. Um, Whereas talking to other people, uh, yeah, that's a word for Emily and I. Uh, (laughs) Talking to other people about that kind of stuff helps remove our blinders to where we've just been spending excessive amounts of money. Whereas we could be thinking wisely about it and giving that out. Um, But as we look at here concluding, uh, really it's important to be discerning this in community together. The foundation of this is that God is generous with us through Jesus, now, here and now, as well as for eternity. All that is secure, it's fixed because it rests on Jesus, not the way we use our money. But because of what Jesus has done, that ought to motivate our giving our, uh, our attitude towards our money, that the, it isn't something we need to make sure we're okay, but it's something that God gives us to then steward, to manage and elevate his name. So really just the question I wanna leave us with is what motivates your giving? Is it guilt? Is it shame? Is it a fear that someone might look at your taxes one day and say, aha, you liar? I hope not. Uh, instead, it's uh, an acknowledgement of God's blessing, rich and abundant blessing to us that we can trust him for taking care of us, that we can give almost negligently and that God, if he takes care of the flowers of the field and the birds and the trees, that we don't have to worry. God is going to take care of us. Is there some way that God is maybe talking to you today? Uh, He might want you to change your investment strategy, so to speak. But again, we don't give out of fear for our future to make sure that God approves of us, but because God already approves of us, he has given us everything and he wants us to do something with that. Okay, and that's it. So we're gonna be transitioning to a time of communion. Uh, I'll invite the worship team back up.
while I pray. Um, but here at Hope, we practice open communion. Uh, you do not have to be a member of this church or any church to participate, but we ask that you do bend a knee to Jesus. And it could be just today, that today would be your first communion. Uh, but we take these elements as a reminder, a symbol of what it is that he's done for us. He died for us on the cross. His body was broken and his blood, which blood, <laughs> his blood was shed for our sake that we could have a restored relationship with him. And so these are symbols for that. And uh, I encourage you to take time uh, to meditate on this, pray to God uh, and um, reflect on that. All right, let me pray. God, I thank you for this time. I would ask that uh, you bless these words that the wheat fall from the chaff and that we would have soft hearts to receive it, that we can uh, submit to your ways, reminded of your love, motivated out of love, but in a way that we want to sincerely honor you with what you give us, with our resources. Bless this time of worship through song and help us to uh, sit our hearts rightly to you and be thankful for what you've given us. That's right in Jesus' name, amen.